This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Past four weeks, particularly to Juliet. But today, first the sad news about the death of our friend Joan Coxidge earlier this month. There have been many tributes from organisations and individuals, both here in Australia and overseas. But to the 3CR community, Joan was there at the beginning, back in the early 1970s. And over many decades, she was a valuable contributor to a number of programs, particularly Tuesday Home Time. In coming weeks, I'll be playing a number of her interviews over that time. We had plans to celebrate with her her 93rd birthday, but that was unfortunately delayed due to COVID, and then it was too late. Joan will be sadly missed by her friends here at 3CR and in the wider activist community. But for today, no Kevin Healy. He's taking an extended holiday until mid-February, so we wish him well. We'll hear from Dr Tim Anderson about the situation in the Middle East as the conflict widens. First part of a longer interview with Dave Burgess, one of the two activists who painted a slogan, No War, on the Sydney Opera House back in 2003. Adelaide QC, Paul Haywood-Smith, dissecting the application by South Africa to the ICJ regarding Israel's attempted genocide. Journalist and writer Fred Frentes on the situation in a number of South American countries, namely Argentina, Venezuela, Ecuador and Brazil. But first, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, remembering his friend, journalist John Pilger, who died in December. Many words are being voiced and written about one of the world's greatest journalists, John Pilger, who died in London on the 30th of December, aged 84. A bright star in the firmament of justice has gone out, a man always on the side of the oppressed. People of the world who cherish human rights have lost a champion. That last tribute from Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University and founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation and an active human rights activist. Stuart, there have been many aspects of the life and work of your friend John Pilger. So to begin with, when did you meet him and how did that friendship develop? Oh, it must have been about 30 years ago after I'd come back from... uh, Gaza and the West Bank, we bumped into one another, but then I nominated him for the Sydney Peace Prize a couple of years before he actually received it. So those were the circumstances. And then we discovered that we were born on exactly the same day and the same year. We didn't always agree, but that gave us a kind of bond. Well, what didn't you agree on? I think... I suffered fools much more gladly than John did. He was much more frank about um, and confronting about the bastardry of uh, 
United States and British foreign policy. I was probably, um, in the early days at any rate, more cautious than he was. <laughs> Looking over those many years, what do you believe were his most admirable qualities? Well, I think he had enormous courage and he he always wanted to hear the other voices. I mean, he, he really gave a voice to vulnerable people all over the world, whether it was the Palestinians or Julian Assange or the people of the Chagos Islands. I think um, that hearing the voices of the vulnerable was a pretty strong theme in his filmmaking and his um, career. I mean, I should also add that he heard the voices of um, the indigenous people of Australia. And it's a pretty courageous thing to do, isn't it, to put yourself up against the big and powerful countries? He was not only put him, confronted the the people who told lies, but uh, he, um, you know, he opposed the privatisation of public resources, for example. But he also was not a friend to other journalists. They were pretty, I think they were largely jealous of his, of his achievements, of his high profile. So he didn't get any, he received very, very little support from mainstream journalists whom he frankly abhorred. Again, I would have been slightly more softly, softly in, in criticizing their cowardice. John was full on. Well, looking at his films and his documentaries, which are the ones you most remember? I remember um, the one about the the war in Iraq, about the murder and mayhem committed by um, American troops aided by the British. I remember the brilliant expose of the decline of the British National Health Service. I forget what the name of the film was. And I think I remember, too, the film, I think it was called Utopia, which was about the dreadful conditions of um, Australian indigenous people living in remote regions. Yeah, I mean, I'm not doing justice to his filmmaking, but all of those were were, were crucial. And I once said on, on the Q&A program, when he, people were being critical of him, that he, even if you'd divided by a factor of 10, the books and articles and films that he'd made and the things that he'd achieved, you would still have to say it was a magnificent achievement. And particularly the American wars in Southeast Asia. Absolutely, sure. Vietnam, Cambodia, look, the, um, the slaughter, the proud bombing by... Uh, Nixon and Kissinger, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, his judgment about them has been uh, and about that um, terrible slaughter has been completely vindicated. And now you've got the situation which, in which a small country that was trying to protest about the slaughter in Gaza is now being uh, bombed by the United States and the United Kingdom when John must be turning in his grave. We've said, you know, it's, it's just a repeat of 19th century gunboat diplomacy. We'll teach those natives a lesson. It's that sort of 
attitude that prevails, which one which John would have have written about. And his concerns for the Palestinians. That's a major uh, concern of his films and of his writing. He, in some ways, he echoed what Nelson Mandela said, that South Africa will never be free until Palestinians are completely free. And um, he saw that as, um, as a form of dreadful, aggressive, violent colonialism by the British, aided by, aided by uh, the, the big arms supplier, the United States. And he railed against that. And of course, the mainstream media, part of the very narrow, violent establishment way of thinking about the way we're supposed to live, were highly critical of John and didn't want to take him seriously. And also his views on journalism. I'd imagine they concur with many of the views that you and I have. Yeah, look, I think he thought that correctly that that journalists were they they were insufficiently curious, they were insufficient, they weren't very courageous, they were uh, happy to parrot and describe an establishment line, and in a way you saw a kind of a bit of pilger in Paul Keating's criticism of um, journalists in the the controversy about the so-called Red Scare in um, when um, Keating was critical of journalists and basically said, you people don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're thinking. You have no, no, no ability to ask the alternative questions. If I give you a contemporary example of what, um, of what John would have done when, what's his name, Blinken, Anthony Blinken, uh, Secretary of State in the, in the US, came back recently, a couple of days ago, and said he saw no evidence of genocide in Israel. I mean, somebody, and, and the, the mainstream journalists don't dare to, they just nod and write down what he says. Pilger would have said, do you really believe that bullshit? Why do you keep telling li- terrible lies? <laughs> Pilger had the ability to, and the courage to say that. And it's what most mainstream journalists, if they were worth the 50 cents, should be saying, should be raising those questions. And he definitely wasn't impressed with social media. No, no, I think he thought that was, I think he thought social media was trivial. Everybody who, who dropped, who, who inserts their, um, their Twitter Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is, um, wisdom is um, behaving as though they they each have their own truths, and um, it's not really worth very much. It's you know it's here today and gone tomorrow. The repetition of tweets. I'm not sure whether anybody learns anything from it. Is what he what he would have said and what he what he once told me. What do you know of his friendship with Julian? I've been in the same room as as Julian and John at the same time, uh, but although that was years ago. Look, I, I think he thought that was one of the biggest ever miscarriages of justice since the British attempted to um, put Tom Paine in the dock um, for treason and for, for writing The Rights of Man, and he flew and he fled to... Um, 
to France, if you if you remember, I think he thought was a, it was an enormous cruelty. How could this dark state called the United States conjure up the idea of sending somebody to prison for 175 years? What human being on the face of the earth would construct such a picture? I mean, after all, and John wrote about the fact that the a secret grand jury somewhere in Virginia spent about five years trying to concoct uh, uh, charges against Julian. I mean, it's the most abject cruelty in which the British have colluded, in which cowardly Australia until recently has gone along with the punishment of one man for, for hurting nobody when the, the real war criminals like George W. Bush, Anthony Blair, John Howard, who colluded in the murder of probably millions, go free. Can you talk a bit about the Sydney Peace Prize and why you chose him at least twice? Sure, sure. Well, yeah, it was controversial because some people said, well, he, you know, he was so confrontational and he was often... Uh, outrageous in what he wrote about uh, politicians and organisations, establishment organisations, that he that he wasn't uh, promoting peace. My argument was that um, if you make a distinction between consensus and conflict, he attacked the consensus point of view, which which had basically said that wars were appropriate, whereas his conflict point of view said. You have to unmask conflict. You have to see who's behind it before you might achieve justice. So he always coupled any commentary about peace with a, with a commentary about justice. And that was why I nominated him for the Peace Prize, why it, it was a first-rate decision. I remember from the floor of the, from the stage of the Sydney Opera House, he reminded the public that since the Second World War, the American army, the American politicians had overthrown 50 governments and 30 liberation movements. And it was that, it was that accusation and that judgment that um, confirmed that we had made the right decision in awarding him the Sydney Peace Prize. I'd imagine there were plenty of attacks on him over those years from governments and individuals? Oh, yes. Look, the Israeli lobby, they, the, the Zionist lobby, they loved him because he wouldn't have a bar of their cruelty and their lying. And the politicians who said, who tried to tell Australians that um, Israel and Australia shared common ground, uh, they didn't, uh, didn't like that. <laughs> they, they feared, I think the Pilger pen and the Pilger camera. But of course, in many ways, he was, I mean, he identified both Israel and Australia as colonial enterprises who were intent on being as cruel as possible to people whom they did not regard as worthy, namely the indigenous people of Palestine or uh, or, or of Australia. He chose to live in London and operate from there. Did he come back to Australia often or not? Oh, yes. No, I mean, for many years, my impression was that he spent 
six months here and six months in um, London. I mean, in London, of course, it was close and face-to-face with sources of power, sources of journalism and so on. But, I mean, I, I don't know the, you know, these personal judgments. I mean, he was usually here during the summertime and um, in London in summertime. That was pretty wise. I mean, the thing that's, that makes me sad is I had no idea that he was sick. I have no idea how he died, wonder whether he was sick, whether he had an illness. He always struck me as in... And I, it makes me anxious because he was exactly the same age as me and he he took care of himself he always looked and behaved as though he was very fit just one quote from john stewart on the future i'm confident that if we remain silent while the u.s war state now rampant continues on its bloody path we bequeath to our children and grandchildren a world with a dreadful climate broken dreams of a better life for all, and as the unlamented General Petraeus put it, a state of perpetual war. Do we accept that, or do we fight back? Sure. Well, the main theme there from your, the good, I mean, appropriate, timely quote, is about John's theme, breaking the silence. We have to break the silence, he always said. In fact, one of the first big meetings he and I organized goodness knows, was about 10 or 12 years ago was called Breaking the Silence in which he got uh, Andrew Wilkie and Julian Burnside and himself to speak in the Sydney Town Hall about what was happening to Julian Assange and I always remember that event because there were a thousand people on the streets who couldn't get in to the 2,000 who did manage to get in but breaking the silence was a constant theme of his through his films, through his books, through his speeches. He was saying, for God's sake, listen, learn, observe, ask the alternative questions. Don't be conned by the determination of governments and powerful institutions to only give you one line of thinking. It was what the authors Edward Bernay and Noam Chomsky said about the propaganda qualities of governments. Don't be controlled and conned, was what they said. And that led to John, John's insistence that breaking the silence was a crucial, should be a crucial quality in all of us. And your final words, Stuart? Well, I'm really sad that he's gone, but he's you know, like the piece I've written in uh, New Matilda as a tribute to him. He lived an amazing life. He left an amazing legacy. uh, And we all have an obligation to live up to the courage and the vision that this guy showed. I'm eternally grateful to to John Pilger, the way he wrote, the way he uh, excited support from people all around the world. They heard him, they understood him, but the powerful who now think it's a good idea to um, collude with Israel or to bomb Yemen still have not listened and learned. But um, to make them listen and learn, you know, is an obligation I have to follow in the steps of John Pilcher. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay, Jan. Lovely to talk to you.
And you've been listening to the tribute to his friend John Pilger by Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. 3CR is radical radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward subscribe. Over 100 days of attempted genocide. There is no other way to explain the actions of the Israeli government in Gaza and increasingly in the West Bank. And the world watches. Indeed, some countries contribute to enable the slaughter to continue. I spoke yesterday with Dr Tim Anderson, former political economy senior lecturer at the University of Sydney. Tim, we've now passed the 100-day mark of the so-called reaction to October 7th. I believe this fact reinforces the lie that it was a reaction to what happened that day, to be able to maintain an occupying force with no sign of an end. Israel is now telling the world what we all knew, that it had no intention of allowing the existence of a Palestinian state. What's been the reaction of all those countries who have been and still support Israel? And just a a slight warning, when I interviewed Tim, there was a a raging wind blowing in Sydney yesterday, and in parts of the interview you'll hear the wind, but it's only wind. Well, some of them, it's quite an incredulous reaction because there was this sort of illusion going on about two states, for example, which the US encouraged and all the Europeans encouraged, and now they're being told to their face by the Netanyahu regime that there's no way that they're going to contemplate that. So that that sort of has disrupted, I suppose, the the image that the the Western powers and the Western media had that there was some sort of down the track, even though it was taken 75 years, there was going to be some two-state solution. I think that that illusion has been popped now. Of course, many people, insiders and including Israelis, have been saying this is an illusion for a long time. Basically, there's a single state there. It's an apartheid regime, and that apartheid regime needs to be dismantled. And you can't have two states with, if one of them is going to be an ethnic cleansing apartheid regime. That's the, that's the dilemma that is now facing, I suppose, particularly the liberal side of the Western uh, oligarchy, but also the liberal side of the of the Israelis, because we've had in history a couple of Israeli PMs, um, Barak and Olmert, who said, if the whole two-state idea disappears, then we're in the South African situation where we can't win. We're in this apartheid situation where uh, our international legitimacy is going to disappear completely. What, what's happened now with the genocide in Gaza is that that legitimacy has disappeared for the for those reasons, for the reason of the genocide and the fact that South Africa has very um, boldly and very appropriately taken them to the to the ICJ over over genocide. Well, surely it's up to those Western powers now to actually do something 
they've got the power in that they're arming and supporting Israel. You would think so, but of course they've um, they've abrogated their responsibility, and that's why you have some of the regional states like um, the recent in Lebanon, the in Yemen. Yemen is effectively, despite all the protestations of the Anglo-Americans, Yemen is uh, acting under its obligations under the Genocide Convention, which is actually a convention for the prevention and punishment of genocide, to stop arms and fuel and so on to the to the regime, basically to the Israeli regime. So, and now the U.S. and Britain have attacked them for doing that, precisely for doing that, while they're providing arms for the genocide in Gaza and trying to obfuscate it by saying, well, you know, the court hasn't made a decision yet, and so on. But there's a jury of the world in this case because we've never had before an actual televised, televised real-time genocide going on. It's always been, you know, people going back and raking over the ashes, looking historically what happened somewhere. But there's no, in many respects, uh, as some people have said, it's the international system of justice that's on trial now because the whole world can see exactly what's going on, despite the efforts to the censor and despite the, the, the murder of over 100 journalists in Gaza, still the world has been able to see directly what's been going on there. Well, it's all very well for us to speak academically about, you know, the the ending of the Palestinian state as Israel sees it, but we're talking about the lives of millions and millions of people. That's right. The the whole region, the historic Palestine, is really, for some years now, has been fairly evenly divided between Jewish Israelis and um, Arab Palestinians, basically about seven and a half million each. And that's not counting the refugees, who were some millions more. So the, the overall affected population is something approaching 20 million. And what about those people in Gaza now? I mean, they can't be left to their own devices because they don't have any devices. That's right. They, they, they've been stripped of most of the means of subsistence and uh, even more dependent on aid than they were before. Now there's a tiny trickle of aid going in just to placate from the Israeli point of view, just to placate the international community, really, but they are very vulnerable, very dependent. And, of course, the whole problem of the lack of water and um, lack of food is now contributing to a uh, a big risk of disease, which could impose itself on a, on a much higher death toll even than the Israeli bombing. That's the, that's the big risk at the moment. But that was inevitable, wasn't it, that this would happen, that the disease would take over? Well, in these circumstances, that, that seems to be what happened. I mean, it, one thing you've had is um, unusually the United Nations has been, many of the UN officials, the UNRWA officials and the Secretary General even have been um, speaking out about what's going on in Gaza. And that's led to a deep split between the Israeli regime and the UN officials. They're now trying to ban the UN officials from going in there. So in international terms, international legitimacy terms, it seems hard that the Israeli reputation is going to, can get much much lower as Claire, what's her name, Claire, the, um, the Irish uh, European MP, Claire Daly says um, there's no way in which this is going to end in which the Israelis aren't going to come out as a pariah regime, basically. How the end game is going to, going to work is remains to be seen, but still the, the reputation of the Israelis has... has lower than it's ever been. And what remains of the West Bank now with all the, the armed settlers there? Well, that's been going on at the same time. I guess it's been overshadowed by the, the, the bombing from the air in Gaza, but there's been 
offensives effectively in, in the West Bank um, and resistance in the West Bank. Um, like in Hebron, for example, there's still this attempt to ethnically cleanse parts of Hebron city, Al-Khalil city, as the Palestinians call it. The, on the other hand, um, if you look more broadly, there's been really an effective decolonization of large parts of occupied Palestine in the north because of the Hezbollah attacks on the Israeli military in the north and also because of the attacks around Gaza or the areas around Gaza have been cleared. I think something like half a million Israelis have left the country already. But you've had some large sections, including the upper Galilee, uh, all the parts around the Syrian Jolan, which make the regime more vulnerable than ever, really, because there's a prospect, there's always been a prospect of the Syrians with their allies, with the Iranians retaking the, the occupied Jolan, you know, that, that the Israelis occupy parts of Lebanon and large parts of Syria, as well as, as well as of Palestine, basically. So now there are large parts, particularly in, in the northern Galilee, where there's no settlers anymore. They, they found it too dangerous to be there, and there's, the Israeli regime can't guarantee their safety going back there so many of them have left the country so i mean a, a large section that could be could be 20 percent could be 25 percent of the israeli population are dual citizens anyway because basically they've they've come from eastern europe they've come from the u.s there's a large number from the u.s who have dual citizenship and they have the capacity to go home effectively um as many of the resistance people have been saying to them you know if you've come from Poland or Ukraine, or of course the Ukraine, the prospects of going home aren't, aren't so good, you know, but there are many North Americans, for example, who've in the past regarded Israel as a type of a holiday camp, you know, like a second home where they could go and enjoy privileges, you know, have a privileged European or North American existence there. But that prospect has disappeared a lot um, because, of course, they didn't want to really serve in the army anyway. And... Um, Many of them have second thoughts about it. I mean, in the U.S. itself, you have a, a big split opening up between a lot of the liberal um, secular Israelis who have been having large demonstrations, not in our name, because they're horrified at, um, at what's been going on in Gaza and they, they don't see themselves as people linked to an apartheid regime. They don't see themselves as racist people, as people engaged in these sort of horrific practices. So it's, a, it's an affront to the image of a lot of liberal North American and European Jews to identify with that regime. And of course, they they detest Netanyahu anyway. There's been a big split between Netanyahu and, and liberal Jews around the world, basically. And I, I think that's part of, the, part of the alienation of the Israeli population, which, however, is far more inclined towards the fascist side of, of Zionism. They genuinely support the, most of them, not all of them, but most of them genuinely support the, what's going on in Gaza, basically. There's a split between them and, and, and the international Jewish community. What about Penny Wong going to Israel and Palestine? What was the point of that? Well, I think I think Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong represents a lot of the European leadership these days. They've, their instinctive reaction at first was simply to back up the Israeli colony because that's what Washington expects of them. And they don't really have an independent foreign policy when it comes to Palestine. But um, on the other hand, they've been horrified by the images coming out of Gaza. They see the huge rallies. They know that there's a big split between most of the Western regimes and the Western populations, really, all across Europe, even across Asia. 
many countries, there's a huge popular reaction and revulsion at what's been going on in Gaza. And of course, that affects the the the, the regimes in in our countries because they they don't want their their credibility, their image to be degraded by association with this. So they're looking for a way to distance themselves from it a bit. And that's why most of the Europeans and I think the Australians tried to push for this temporary ceasefire or or pause in the in the bombing basically to try and distance themselves from the Biden regime at the moment. You see the Biden regime has also lost out domestically massively. The the younger generation in particular has abandoned the Biden regime and you would think that the um in the US context that the younger generation would more naturally align with the Democrats, but the reverse has happened because they're so horrified about what's been happening in Palestine. So it presents a real dilemma for poor Western regimes. I think Penny Wong is, is in that category. She's trying to find some way to distance herself from the US unconditional support for the Israeli massacres while not um, having a complete breach with with Washington, because that, they see that as fatal too. They see that you know the financial elites and so on will abandon them if they break with Washington. So they, I think they feel under a lot of pressure basically, but they're not really capable of having an independent an independent policy. There are very few European regimes which do. I think Slovenia, for example, has backed South Africa in the International Court of Justice, but otherwise you see the world in terms of the government, the global south has lined up with Palestine and almost virtually all the Europeans, the Western governments have lined up with Israel to this day. Um, but their, their, their confidence is shaken by the fact that at the, at the grassroots level, the people have been reacting very strongly against uh, the Israelis. What's your assessment, Tim, of the of the the move by South Africa at the ICJ and and, and the way that, that it worked those couple of days when they were talking and um, Israel had a chance to reply? Well, I thought the South African presentations, which were very well organised, were very capable, very impressive. Um, a lot of um, international lawyers were impressed by it. You know, they they divided it up in about seven or eight of them, presented different sections of it. It's really a tremendous vindication for South Africa in a way, um, which of course has a unique experience with apartheid and with a racist regime, which engages in racist massacres. Um, I was in South Africa last month, and um, there were some very important insights, I think, by South African leaders into the into the Palestinian situation. Many countries are now, uh, uh, glo- particularly global South countries, are aligning with the South Africans in the in the Hague these days, but. Um, uh, the outcome, of course, people had thought that there was no real possibility of UN action because the NATO states have a um, there's three NATO states with the with a veto power in the Security Council. But according to the Irish American lawyer Francis Boyle, it's still possible that an ICJ ruling, even a temporary one, because initially that what they're looking for now is temporary measures, which which um, uh, even if there's the possibility of um, the risk of genocide, they can order some, or they can advise, make an advisory opinion on on some measures. That can go to the General Assembly. If the Security Council uh, is incapable of doing anything, which seems likely, the General Assembly apparently still has the power to, one, suspend Israel from the United Nations, to um, order a a tribunal into the crimes being committed in in Palestine, and three, impose sanctions on Israel. So there's still life, apparently, in the General Assembly. You know that the Global South basically dominates the General Assembly. They can pass things 
without any without any veto there, they can just do it with a large majority. You know, if, for example, 150 states in the General Assembly decide to impose sanctions on Israel because of their genocidal massacres, then that would be a very powerful force in the world to move a whole lot of countries, particularly those that might be sitting on the fence, towards isolating the Israeli regime. So I think it's still, it seems to be still possible that the ICJ process can affect the General Assembly and that may have a, an impact on, on isolating and sanctioning the Israeli regime, which is exactly what happened with, with South Africa, of course, basically. Well, if the General Assembly does move on either of those three issues, how long could it take? Well, no one knows really. I mean, I, I, I personally don't think the Netanyahu regime has much time. I don't. They don't think they can survive this year at all. I think they'll be gone in in months, if not weeks. But then there would be a there would be a gap. Basically, there would be a vacuum if the Netanyahu re- regime collapses. And remember, most Israelis oppose Netanyahu these days for their own reasons. You know, they've got their own gripes against Netanyahu. If that collapses, there would be a vacuum, and the U.S., the sponsors of Israel, um, particularly the Anglo-Americans, would rush to fill that vacuum. And then, but then the question is, well, what about the Palestinian people? And so, ideally, you would have a U.N.-sponsored conference with a referendum to negotiate a new, a new government in Palestine, historic Palestine. But you know, who knows? There could be all sorts of chaotic developments there. But I think that the Netanyahu regime is very fragile, and uh, I don't think it's going to see out this year. The elephant in the room, could that be Trump at the end of the year? Well, I mean, in the US, of course, these things um, resonate, you know, the, the, the election at the end of this year. But um, the problem is that Trump doesn't really represent any, certainly doesn't re- represent any relief for the Palestinian people. His vanity makes him talk up a lot of things about him ending conflicts and so on. But really, in the past, he he uh, very enthusiastically supported Netanyahu. That doesn't look very good for him in the... It might look good for him in, the, in some of the parts of the Republican constituency in the US, but it doesn't look very good for him at an electoral level, basically. I think he's breaking with Netanyahu because Netanyahu didn't support him when he had his own problems with the with the US electoral system. But he really, Trump is identified with someone who, sorry, is Trump is identified with Netanyahu, who has flaunted international law by, you know, claiming to annex the Syrian Jolan, claiming to annex East Jerusalem, and so on. You know, the, the moving of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and so on were identified with Trump. So it'll certainly be a factor in the election. But whether it assists Trump um, in his electoral campaign. I mean, certainly it's damaging Biden at the moment. The, the Palestinian massacres in Palestine are a factor contributing to the likely defeat of Biden. Uh, there, may, there may be other factors contributing to the defeat of Biden, um, which are going to play into the hands of Trump. But I, I think that in, in many respects, this issue is so powerful. It, it's something that's going to affect US electoral politics rather than the other way around, if you know what I mean. In other words, all of the candidates are going to be conditioned by how are they going to be seen in terms of um, resolving or aggravating the crimes that are going on at the moment. Focus on the wider region. We're talking about Syria, we're talking about Iraq, we're talking about Yemen, Lebanon. Mm. How is that going? The problem has been always been, you know, for a very long time, as the people in the region know, that the, the Palestinian situation, the, the colonisation of Palestine, the, the apartheid regime there, is at the root of the destabilisation for the whole region. 
The Israelis occupy parts of Lebanon still. They occupy parts of Syria. They occupy parts of Yemen. Many people don't know this, but the Israelis with the Emiratis are occupying Socotra Island, which is a World Heritage Site of Yemen, selling it for tourism and setting up a military base there. You know, So they have been attacking Iraqi resistance groups with the U.S. Of course, they're, really, they're a- acting effectively as an arm of the U.S. policy in the region to destabilize. They've been attacking Iran. They've been assassinating Iranian advisors in Syria recently. I think Iran has promised that it's going to respond to the most recent killing of five Iranian advisors in Damascus. So they're attacking other countries willy-nilly, more or less. And the US is under a lot of pressure itself. But the Iraqi government has finally got a new round of resolve to kick the US out of Iraq. If they kick the US out of Iraq, the US won't be able to steal oil from Syria and sell it through Iraq into Turkey, for example. So all of these conflicts are interrelated. And you see also the reactions that, that Yemen has rallied in support of um, in support of Palestine, that the Iraqi resistance has been attacking US bases in Iraq and Syria. So at the root of all of this is the Palestinian conflict and the denial of rights to Palestinian people. Really, as I said, for example, with Iraq, if the US is forced out of Iraq, that will place enormous pressure on the US occupation in Syria, for example. So it's hard to see any of these conflicts um, resolved in, in isolation, basically. Two major players in the area, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, what are they saying? Well, the Saudis, of course, have been covertly playing footsies with the Israelis. Apparently, they're still involved. They, they refused at the Arab League summit to isolate and uh, the Israelis and stop oil supplies, for example. It's thought that they are supplying you know, covertly oil to the Israelis at the moment. Turkey has also been, while Erdogan has been talking up against Israel, but nevertheless, uh, he's been do, doing business with the Israelis for some time. Also, Azerbaijan, which is tied to tied to Turkey in many respects, they've been providing oil to the Israelis. So there's this whole covert network of um, U.S. allies in a loose sense in the region, which are helping the Israelis. That includes Jordan, by the way, too. So some U.S. analysts are talking about, because they're taking, I think, too seriously Erdogan's rhetoric against Israel and thinking that Erdogan's going, uh, and Turkey are going to be a player against Israel. I'm sure that's not going to happen, basically. that There's been a, been a double-faced approach from, from Mr. Erdogan for quite some time there, so don't expect any real... It's just that in the whole region, of course, in, including in the nations of the region which have governments which are aligned to the U.S., uh, like Egypt, like Turkey, the populations are extremely supportive of Palestine. And so, in other words, there's this big split there, too, like in our country, between the people and the governments, basically. In Egypt, people are very, very strongly pro-Palestine, and occasionally you see politicians saying things. But as we know, there's a military regime there which is very tied to the U.S. and in debt to the Saudis, basically. So that... That influence, that U.S. influence, is still there, and, and it's financial because um, you know the, the Saudis are a big are a big cash cow. All of the the, the monarchies, the Arab monarchies, the Persian Gulf are, are compromised in some way. Bahrain has a huge U.S. naval base. Qatar has a big U.S. air base. Qatar's in a in a strange position because they are also sponsors of Hamas in many respects. Because Qatar and Turkey are both um, Muslim Brotherhood network groups, basically, and Hamas came out of that Muslim Brotherhood network. So Qatar is playing a very complicated, unusual role at the moment there. 
But the US still, of course, depending on its allies. Turkey's a member of NATO, too, so remember whatever Erdogan says. Um, so they're linked into that effectively US military bloc. Is there any prospect of military aid lessening going to Israel? And would it matter because you've talked about all these other countries who are also supporting Israel? I think it matters because, um, of course, let's remember apartheid South Africa was supported by Britain and the US till the 11th hour, you know, until a couple of years before apartheid was dismantled there. But if, for example, the, the UN General Assembly starts to move on uh, trying to isolate the Israelis and ha- imposing a, mil- uh, a ban on, on military and uh, on any military supplies to the Israelis. That would affect a lot of countries and, and place pressure on a lot of um, on some countries. So there's a possibility of, of um, the UN agencies now, particularly with South Africa's um, initiative in the in the ICJ, to increase the pressure and increase the isolation of the Israeli regime. I think that would be important. It clearly was important historically with um, with the dismantling of South Africa, which, remember, South Africa had the full support of the Reagan administration, the Thatcher administration. It had nuclear weapons. It seemed, um, you know, all-powerful in the 80s until all that started to unravel. And the role of Iran at the moment? Iran is being very restrained because uh, they, like most of the big powers, are very wet, and even Hezbollah, for example, very wary of escalation, which is always, by its nature, unpredictable. You don't know how far escalation is going to go. Uh, at the moment, they are poised. Of course, they are openly supporting the, all of the factions of the Palestinian resistance, the Lebanese resistance, Syria, Iraq, the, the factions of the Iraqi resistance that are attacking the U.S. bases in 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 Iraq these days, but they haven't got directly involved. Of course, they have a tremendous military capacity. We saw that when they responded to the murder of Soleimani and attacked the U.S. base in Ain al-Assad in Iraq. But um, they're playing uh, they're playing low key now. But they have promised revenge for the five uh, Iranian advisers who were assassinated in Damascus just a few days ago. So they're going to do something. They're going to respond to the Israelis. You you may have seen that uh, about um, 10 days ago they attacked um, a Mossad uh, headquarters in Erbil, which is in Kurdistan, part of northern Iraq. And they also did missile attacks on parts of Idlib in northwestern Syria. So they have directly engaged in attacks on some of the U.S.-Israeli allies, effectively, in the region before. I think they're going to do something like that, but they'll they'll try and cover it under a response or retaliation to the, the Israeli assassination. People might have thought perhaps Iran might directly attack the Israelis, but I guess they're worried about the escalation from the US if they do a big missile strike on, on Israeli military installations or Tel Aviv or Tel Aviv airport or something like that. I suppose they're concerned that that might escalate things. So They've been quite restrained up until till now, I should say, but they, of course, openly support, you know, all of the all of the resistance groups, the so-called axis of resistance there, which are their allies rather than proxies. In other words, the, the U.S. tries to say that Iran is directing everything that goes on in Palestine and Hezbollah and Yemen, but that's not true. They're, they're allies who are supported, and there's a fair degree of autonomy in how the Palestinian resistance factions work, for example. Well, just finally, Tim, to go back to what you've said before and others have said, how much of this destabilisation of all these countries is the United States behind? 
No, the US is behind all of it, basically. I mean, they they have the strategy which they announced in um, 2006 when, when uh, the Israelis invaded Lebanon again of creating a new Middle East under the, you know, freedom and democracy and so on, under the lovely tutelage of the Israelis and the Saudis, basically, you know, the least democratic of all of the regimes in the region, basically. So, and destabilisation and division has been the key to it. You know, they, they managed to partition Iraq to get rid of the, the Nationalist Party, the Ba'athist Party, and to encourage divisions on ethnic and, and religious lines, basically. So Iraq has been weakened by that. They failed to do it in Syria, but they are occupying part of Syria along with Turkey and the Israelis. So, so dividing the peoples of the region up, which was you know, at the root of, of course, the division of Palestine, the creation of a, a sectarian uh, state in Lebanon, which effectively is very weak, um, so that destabilisation and division has been the key tool of the US to try and control the region, and, and it's it's ongoing. And, of course, the converse to that is that the resistance groups or the independent states and peoples of the region, their increasing coordination and integration has been the key to defeating that, basically. And, and the tide is turning against the US in the region, just as it is in the world with the with the bigger players like Russia and China, for example. Just This is just final, final... Tim, you'd have many you'd have many friends in the in the region. How are they feeling? Well, they're under a lot of economic pressure. You know, the, the, I just talking to a Syrian the other day, and um, it's winter. They're lacking fuel. You know, the, the U.S. economic power, the financial power, the U.S. Do, the dictatorship of the U.S. dollar, their control of the SWIFT system. They're able to inflict real damage. This is part of the the economic war. You know, they've got physical blockades on Yemen and Palestine. But they've got this economic siege on virtually all of the region from the Mediterranean to Afghanistan, basically. So that the bigger countries like Iran that grow most of the grow grow their own food and produce most of what they need themselves are less affected by it. But the little countries are suffering because the economic war is really a huge a huge weapon that the U.S. has against little people. And you know, it wasn't that long ago that the U.S. was talking about free trade and free markets. You know, but They've got over two dozen countries now under these what they call sanctions, which are really siege conditions, and that makes life very hard for these people. That's why there's such a big push, such an enthusiasm amongst countries, even countries that aren't under a direct siege, to join these new blocs like BRICS and the, and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They're hoping that, that China, for example, and perhaps Russia also create a new financial system that enables people to get out from under the dictatorship of the dollar. That's a huge factor in the world these days. Okay, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. Sorry about all the wind <laughs> here. Indeed, it was very windy in Sydney yesterday. That's Dr Tim Anderson. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. 
The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. If you've been to protests, rallies or actions in Burn City, then chances are you've heard us. Renegade Solidarity Audio Force are the noise behind the cause, amplifying the voices of resistance on the streets since 2017. A volunteer crew of artists, activists, sound techs, musicians and troublemakers, we provide the sound systems to make sure that your demands are undeniably loud and clear. To bring the decibels, we need your help to upgrade and maintain our equipment. Join us at Miscellanea on Saturday the 27th of January from 9pm for a Renegade Solidarity Audio Force fundraiser in collaboration with Secret World Records. Featuring Ramsey, Marushti, Pataphysics, Lizzie Nice, Joe Dubs and Endmets. Follow us on the socials at renegadesolidarity.audioforce and tickets are available through the link in our bio. That's Saturday the 27th of January from 9pm at Miscellanea in the city. A 3CR supporter. There is an increasing demand that there be a full release of all National Security Committee and Cabinet documents relating to the 2003 decision which committed Australia to the US-led Coalition of the Willing to invade Iraq. This follows the release of the 2003 Cabinet Papers, which many believe barely scratched the surface of the Howard government's decision to go to war with Iraq, reinforcing the need for a parliamentary vote before committing Australia to future wars. Today and next week, we travel back to 2002 and continue after the 2003 invasion when worldwide... Millions protested in the streets. Then on March 2003, two activists climbed the sails of the Sydney Opera House to paint the world's no war in bright red paint. One was Dave Burgess, and I spoke with Dave recently. Dave, an action such as the painting of the anti-war slogan on the sails of the Opera House didn't come from nowhere. I'd imagine... It had a long and fruitful history. For me, it was when I was doing my HSC through the Technical College or TAFE system back in 1988 in New South Wales, the big cuts that were made to the education budget by uh, Terry Metherall, the then Reiner Government Education Minister. There were some massive protests. And it really was the first time I'd sort of been, you know, I was always a bit politically aware through the my teenage years, but sort of coming from an area and, and family where protest was kind of frowned upon, it wasn't till then that I really understood the need to walk out with fellow students. And, and we were quite a, a radical bunch at that place. We decided to go ahead of the rest of the state and do our own a couple of days before the big protest. And cops didn't like that, so got fairly violent. And that was really the first time I'd been involved in that interaction that showed a need to solidify and maintain solidarity and, and buckle down. And where'd it go from there? I was I was living out at Bathurst after that in the 
central west of New South Wales and, uh, you know, doing all the, the normal things, but around a good crew of people again. And at the, at the time, there were big protests down on the New South Wales-Victorian border for the, the Edenwood chipping situation. So a, a bunch of us went down on a bus and I'd always grown up in the bush, but I'd never seen a clear-felling operation like the ones like you get on both sides of the border down there and also Tasmania. I was stunned. I, I couldn't believe it. We all got back on the bus and went to Bathurst and two weeks later I was back there and for the long haul. Did you achieve much with those demonstrations? I don't know. The, the juggernaut of the education cuts and, and the, the you know that real push for privatisation and the growing ever-growing number of private schools in New South Wales with the and the decline of the, the public education system continued. But certainly with the, the South East Forest protests were, were a grim initiation to, to forest protesting. I mean, you, you were coming off the back of, um, I guess, a decade of environmental successes and, and victories and the the ongoing growth of that movement through sort of in New South Wales you'd had the rainforest decision uh, in the early 80s and then I guess it, people had moved on to the Franklin and places like Roxby Downs so there was a growing uh, protest movement direct action movement we sort of came in on the tail end of the 80s and, and there was a determination on the part of the Liberal government of New South Wales then to outlast these protests. There was no end in sight. And by the time it was over, I'd spent a couple of years down there. There'd been over 2,000 or, or just under 2,000 arrests. Really nothing had been protected, or, or so we thought. But as, you know, a couple of changes of government later, Little bits were added on to the park system. You know, it was by no means a, a thoroughly satisfying victory as such, but it did show that you could put something in the public's mind and, and a government might make good later. So there was grim times in the southeast and the length of time people spent in the forest and the slow decline in numbers, the violence of the timber industry, all, you know, left quite a few of us with deep, deep scars over the thing, but also a, a bug to keep going, um, you know, some of us. I guess on that blockade, you, you sort of had, with a fair bit of tension, I guess, between the conservation movement and its organisations and the activists on the ground. As things didn't go as planned for the political strategy, that cohesion between the people in the cities and, and the ones who were going and seeing the politicians and those in the forest got less and less effective. To me, it, you know, I was quite happy in the bush and, and learning all of that stuff, but I also saw a need to, for at least some of us to be going in between the two and trying to maintain a decent strategy. So, yeah, even though I was, you know, less than 20 or just 20, I think, I started doing that stuff. So, yeah, I still...
know many people who were I was with down there, and you know whether they're involved or not. We all got very cold, and we all got very muddy. <laughs> I'd imagine though you made some lifelong friends. Oh yeah, in some ways it was a forest process like no other. It's in certainly in New South Wales, so, you know you could just the length of it, the fact it slowly fizzled into a bit of a mess was really educating and and bonding like we all knew um what we'd been through so when we all drifted back to whatever we went on to do um our eyes still spark up when we see each other (laughs) and what did you go on to do did you stay in australia or did you try having a go overseas oh first i went back to school went back to uni pretty battered and bruised and a little bit sick. So I went back to Newcastle and started studying communications and journalism there. I didn't know much about Newcastle. I knew I liked it. I'd, I'd been there a couple of times and had a had a good time and just liked the feeling of the place and the, the sort of crusty industrial nature, but realised, you know, I'd walked into an activist town. So it was it was a bit more upbeat in terms of, Active. It was changing drastically. We were we were going right towards the closure of BHP and so many people doing things there. Good people everywhere, really. So I, I went back to uni, um, but I was always keeping a, a pulse on what was going on in southeast New South Wales, and there was still activism around it. But I, I also started having a lot more contact with the people defending forests up the north coast and, and along the Great Divide there started getting involved with the, the North East Forest Alliance. That, that was sort of my first couple of years in Newcastle and often going back down to Sydney to catch up with people and started there getting in, getting involved in human rights issues such as Bougainville, which happened quite randomly. I was literally walking through Redfern and close to a, a squat I used to have a place in and Suddenly an old uh, friend from, from out at Bathurst actually leapt out of a pub door and said, hello, and sort of gave me a hug and said, we need you. And um, it was there I met a, a representative of the, the Bougainville independence movement who needed a handwriting and media release, which I did, which I gave him. And by the time I'd written that media release, I was that pissed off about what, he just described to me over a couple of beers and, and the writing of a, a press statement. And I said, look, if you need a hand, I'm I'm up to the long haul there too. And that actually took you to London, didn't it, with a demo? Did a out- few years later. Yeah, out, outside Rio Tinto's office. Well, yeah, we did a fair bit in Australia before that. We had a lot to do with pushing hard for a change of government and forest policy in New South Wales, uh, leading into the 1995 state government elections. And, and that was when the Carr government came to power under was almost the number one promise of protecting the old growth and high conservation value forests of New South Wales. I was coming towards the end of, end of my degree. Um, we'd sort of hit a point with the forest campaign where you could certainly not leave it um, as such, but certainly take a break. And I took the uh, advantage of um, my grandfather's 100th birthday to 
stuck over England to celebrate that and then stay for a year because, of, of course, I had citizenship. And I'd been doing Bougainville stuff with the Bougainville Freedom Movement all that time. I'd set up a, a couple of groups in Newcastle and taken part in the, the campaigning of that national movement to... Um, push for Bougainville's independence and for you know for an end to the the war on Bougainville and Australia's involvement in that war I took that over to the UK and started giving several talks on what was going on um, you know it was Rio Tinto mine so we I was in the, the heart of the beast as far as the company was concerned and so few people had heard it at all there's a bit of awareness around what was going on in, in East Timor, of course, but it was good to start up a, a movement which became a bigger movement and quite an important one, I think, in, in the Bougainville context that was active on it over there and in Europe. But, yeah, it did all culminate or begin with, with this uh, protest outside Rio's headquarters in London that sort of was all so quick it was over before it began, but it was quite an effective little one, as it turned out, for getting things going. Did you travel to other countries as well as England? Yeah, I took it to Czech, the Czech Republic, but mainly because I was based in England and also planning on some activism around the oil drilling in West Africa, in Agoni land in Nigeria. I was mainly in London um, and around there preparing for that. But no, I didn't didn't go on a massive European tour. I would have loved to, but yeah, time wasn't really on my side there and I, I was working as well. Yeah, so I was London-based and then coming home doing stuff over in Africa. And you've been listening to activist Dave Burgess talking about his activities prior to 2003 when he and his friend Will Sanders painted No War on the Sydney Opera House sales. Next week, we'll hear all about why they did it, the consequences then and now. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. 
Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday, at the State Library. Ischia Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. On the 29th of December 2023, South Africa filed with the International Court of Justice, that's the IGCJ, an 84-page application accusing Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. It maintains that Israel's activities since the war began on the 7th of October are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial and ethnic group in the Gaza Strip, unquote. That charge fits clearly under the definition of genocide in the Geneva Convention, to which Israel is a signatory. To talk about this and a number of other issues relating to the attempted genocide in Gaza, I spoke last week with Paul Haywood-Smith, recently retired after 20 years as a QC in Adelaide and the initial chairperson of the Australian Friends of Palestine Association, which is registered in South Australia. First, Paul, there are two UN organisations with similar names and initials, the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, and the International Criminal Court, the ICC. Can you explain the different areas they cover? The ICJ is a court that deals with disputes between states. Uh, For example, here, South Africa and Israel, two states, and both have signed the relevant international articles appertaining to genocide, and so they they have submitted to the jurisdiction of the ICJ. The ICC is the other court in The Hague, international court, which deals with crimes against individuals. So that, for example, in in this instance, I mean, case has been brought against Netanyahu as an individual as being responsible for war crimes. Uh, And so they're quite separate. And the ICJ has has real significance. I mean, if it finds in South Africa's favour here, then it means that all other members who are subject to the court are, are bound to comply with any orders that it makes and here South Africa is seeking provisional orders pending a final determination uh, and that could have the effect of really putting huge pressure on the United States and the United Kingdom and Australia for that matter uh, to stop supporting Israel by provision of arms and, and things like that. How often do cases go to the ICJ? Not often. I mean one of the most recent ones I think is about five or six years ago against uh, Inspector the Rohingya, that's one, and um, uh, and that um, resulted in orders against Myanmar and uh, they have, I think, substantially been complied with, but I don't, there's not a lot. And similarly with the ICC, uh, the, 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 it seems to be the case that cases take an endless 
period of time. Not sure why, but um, it seems to be the case. It's interesting with this with the ICJ. I mean, there are 15 judges hearing this case, plus two additional ones: one Israeli and one South African, which they're allowed to nominate. And it's interesting that. Um, Four of the 15 judges are due to retire on the 6th of February. So one would anticipate that there would be a a decision on this provisional application before the 6th of February. So these are permanent judges. They're not sort of rotating round other judges when a case comes up. No, they're permanent judges. I'm not sure how long their terms of office are, but uh, they're permanent. But as I said, the rules provide for each of the parties to a, a, a dispute to nominate a judge of, from their country to sit with the with the fifteen. It's a bit unusual, but um, if you've got fifteen judges, it's it's not likely that one or two judges will make much of a difference. I'd be surprised here if there wasn't a decision fairly soon. We can't go past the significance of the fact that it's South Africa bringing this case forward? No, no, of course not. I mean, uh, South South Africa has a very close history with Israel. I mean, prior to to the de Klerk regime in South Africa ending, and and thereby ending apartheid, the South African regime was very close to Israel. Um, South Africa, you will recall in those days, was also a nuclear power. Uh, and South Africa and Israel had close ties, particularly in terms of the provision of arms, making sure they both had arms and so on. And, and so they, they, they had this this historical connection. And then, of course, apartheid in South Africa uh, ends and the, the Nelson Mandela government um, uh, immediately switched and became critical of, of Israel, which, it's, which he saw as being an apartheid state. Which is really the basis of the, which is really, so far as I'm concerned, the real problem in the whole matter. Israel has been found to be an apartheid state by, as you know, by the by Israel's own human rights organisation B'Tselem, uh, also by Human Rights Watch, the New York-based human rights entity, and Amnesty International, all, all very reliable. Uh, organisations with real credit, having um, published reports with many, many, many pages of detailed evidence and so on, and and they've gone unanswered, and of course unanswered by our Australian government. And if, as as I believe is clear, Israel is an apartheid state, that apartheid state does not have a right to exist. That's not to say that the people who are Israeli citizens today have to get up and leave. They stay exactly where they are. It's just that that there needs to be a a non-apartheid government, uh, which means a a government for all of the people, all having equality, all having the right to vote, no section of of the community being above another section of the community. And that's really, in my view, the whole problem that caused the Middle East to be fractured and that's been the case for 75 years now and it's just getting worse and one can understand why the Arab peoples of the region are angry and one can even more understand why Palestinians who have been um, repressed have reached their 
the boiling point, and that happened in Gaza on the 7th of October. Uh, and one can readily see why when one looks at what the um, uh, Israeli government threatened to do, which is, for example, things like there will be no electricity and no water in Gaza. Now, the very fact that Israel is in a position to say there will be no electricity and no water is indicative of the control which Israel has and has had over the last and exercised over the last 15 or 16 years and reflects what, why Gazan people, Palestinians who, who happen to live in Gaza, know that they are second-class people and, and why they are angry, why they felt that they have to resist and they have a right to resist in international law. International law recognises that an occupied people has a right to, to resist, including a right to exercise violence to undertake violence to resist, and that's what they, the Palestinians did on the 7th of October. Now, we don't know, we can't be confident that we know exactly what happened on the 7th of October. It would appear as though some awful things happened, but uh, we do know that um, the initial reports that came out of, uh, of Israel as to what happened on the 7th of October have been seriously questioned, and indeed Israel has acknowledged that a lot of those reports, particularly about beheading of babies and so on, were just false. But they obviously turned much of the world against the Palestinians in Gaza. But since then, we have learned that a lot of it was simply propaganda. Uh, but whether or not it was the, um, the Palestinians who undertook the October 7th attack breached rules, war crimes, I mean, Gaza is not a state, so it is not capable of really of committing war crimes. But but the people who did attack uh, those kibbutzes and and Israeli armed camps or whatever they however they call them needed to be controlled, no doubt. And Israel had a right to uh, defend themselves against though, that attack. But but one thing is absolutely clear is that Israel has not did not have the right to do what it's done since then and uh, engage in the genocide that they have engaged in and which they are now having to face. Moving back to the application by South Africa to the ICJ, it's 84 pages. There's three main components. Could you briefly, if you can, explain what those three components are? They have to establish genocide. Now, genocide, by definition, is acts committed um, with the intent to destroy either in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. So, And there are certain clearly accepted concepts of what might, that might entail, and the intent is established um, by, in this case, effectively, by statements by Israeli officials, in particular the, the, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, continually referring to the Israelites' biblical en enemy, the Amalek people, we go back to Joshua's in the Old Testament and God instructing Moses to smite the Amalek and, and destroy and kill all of the Amalek people. And the very fact that Netanyahu raises this uh, example makes it clear that this is what uh, he's intending to do, which, come, which satisfies the intent for destroying in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, religious group. But not, it's not only him, his um, defence minister, 
uh, and other ministers you know, talk about um, fighting human animals and cleansing Gaza, destroying Gaza. All of these comments, uh, I think, made a very strong case, and the commentaries that have come out that have come from the end of last week suggest a very strong case was made by South Africa. But coming back to the acts that can be indicative of genocide, we have you know, the killing of people, that's clear, clearly happened, causing serious bodily and mental harm to the Palestinians, mass expulsion from their homes and displacement of them in Gaza, as I said, deprivation of access to adequate food and water, deprivation of access to adequate shelter, clothes, hygiene, sanitation, deprivation of adequate medical assistance, destruction of Palestinian life and culture, you know, the bombing of mosques and so on, imposing measures intended to prevent Palestinian births. All of these things, and, and, and also in more recently the suggestion that Israel is promoting voluntary relocation of Palestinians in Gaza to either the Sinai, which is under the control of Egypt, of course, part of Egypt, or, or, or even places like the Congo. And it's suggested that and Egypt has indicated that it, that it will not accept Palestinians coming from Gaza. It doesn't want to be a party, party to another Nakba. Uh, but apparently is, Egypt has huge international debt and Israel is apparently prepared to take on that debt in order to get Egypt to accept these people. And it's also prepared to pay substantial sums to the Congo, Congolese government to, to take them. And the, the suggestion that Palestinians would be voluntarily leaving Gaza is ridiculous. When you bomb people indiscriminately and tell them to move from the north to the south for safety, and then you, when they get there, then you bomb the south, tell them to move to Rafa, the crossing, uh, and then you continue to bomb them there and deprive them of food and so on. And then when they say, oh, we would like to go to the Congo or we would like to go to the Sinai, so they don't die, that is not them voluntarily seeking to leave. So I think that sort of paints the picture. And, and as I said, I mean, we, we, we are concerned here with a 75-year history of settler colonialism, essentially. And indeed, even prior to 1948, during the time of the British Mandate, I mean, it was really a European settler colonialism. But since then, it's been the Zionist motivation and the Zionist justification, which is that we are the chosen people and God gave us this land. Now, uh, humanity has advanced, in my view, to the 21st century where people will not place credit on the suggestion that God, some, someone's God, 3,000 years ago, has said, well, this is your land. If, if you start giving credence to arguments like that, well, then you, know, you might as well have Pocahontas saying, well, Manhattan Island is, is, is my people's land and it was given to us by our gods, <laughs> whoever, and we want it back. In my view, humanity has advanced beyond those sorts of arguments. What reply has Israel made to the application? It has essentially 
said, no, uh, there's not genocide. We have taken all precautions not to harm civilians. You know, I, I think essentially that's that's the case. One of one of the other things which they have said, which some observers have been a little bit concerned about, is that the RCJ does not have jurisdiction because in the terms of the ISJ's rules of conduct, there has to be a dispute between two states. And what they said was that prior to, what Israel said is that prior to South Africa lodging the application of the International Court of Justice, South Africa was not in dispute with Israel. Now, I think it's a bit of a long shot argument, uh, but it would um, have the potential to sort of to enable the court and any justice who's concerned to give them an out to say, well, yeah, absolutely, there wasn't a dispute, perhaps we haven't got jurisdiction. But here, the facts of the matter are that, that South Africa had suspended uh, diplomatic ties with Israel uh, you know, some weeks before they brought the application. They had recalled their own diplomats from Tel Aviv. They had uh, continuously called for a ceasefire. South African Parliament had called for Israel's embassy in South Africa to be shut, for Israel to withdraw its ambassador from Pretoria. So it seems to me that there's ample evidence there of there being the sort of dispute that is required to establish the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. So I don't, I mean, apart from bare denials by Israel, and um, I don't believe there is, is much of a defence at all. I mean, to, to say that they have gone out of their way to to warn Palestinians to move from the north to the south, that's not going to, to, to wash, in my view. I mean, when you do that and then drop these these bombs that um, uh, are so destructive and have, they have so little control over where they go about, it just doesn't make sense. W what I think people around the world, humanity, your listeners, were so distressed about was to think of a child under rubble dying, to think of a child who has limbs amputated without anaesthetic. I mean, it's enough to make me even almost cry now, and, and the world will not accept that. And I hope that these 15 judges will see through any defence that Israel has sought to Bring forward. Well, Israel says it's not a member of the ICJ, so it won't take notice of the decision. Yeah. But it has to because it's a member of the UN, so it has to take notice. Exactly, and it's a it's a signatory of the Genocide Convention. Now, of course, it, the history is that Israel has ignored decisions of the ICJ before. You recall that in 2004, the ICJ handed down an opinion on the illegality of the apartheid wall. The wall was being built along close to the Green Line. Israel ignored that decision uh, and it has ignored all binding UN Security Council resolutions, such as the 2016 resolution, which was passed because the United States on that occasion uh, abstained as opposed to exercising its veto, and that was the resolution which called for the cessation of the building of settlements in the West Bank and the dismantling of settlements. Well, Israel has ignored that. 
And I, I think it's highly likely that Israel will ignore this one. But, like I said earlier, countries like the United States and the UK and Germany, which have, in effect, supported Israel over the last three or four months, will be faced with a binding order. It would be a big thing for them to ignore it. And even the United States, the United States is losing credibility amongst the community of nations and knows that. And so I think that notwithstanding the fact that Israel might say, well, we're not, we're ignoring it, it's likely to result in the end in, in a resolution of this matter because a lot of Israeli people, as I understand it, are leaving the country. Uh, Israeli businesses, which will be subjected to boycotts and sanctions and so on, will know that this is going to really hurt them. They will not be able to survive. And that's what happened in South Africa 30-odd years ago. Um, it was the financial consequences uh, that ultimately compelled South Africa and the de Klerk regime to abdicate. And, and, and here, in, in, in this instance, I'm not sure whether you read my article in the Irritations as to what I thought was the mechanism, but uh, I believe that a mechanism which, which at this stage at least calls for two states, Israel and Palestine, Palestine on the, on the Green Line uh, boundaries, the 67 boundaries for the return of all the hostages and, 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 and return of Palestinian prisoners in, in Israel and for the dismantling of settlements in the West Bank, etc., and, and for a, a United Nations trusteeship government in the, in the initial stages of Palestine. I think this is what has to happen. And when it does happen, and if and when, there is the chance for reconciliation between Israelis and Arabs and Palestinians is, is, is given to them. It may well be that in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, uh, Israel and Palestine will in some way come together uh, in some sort of confederation or even a single state. Who knows? But it would be a single state which is not an apartheid state. It would be a single state in which all people have the same rights as we have in Australia. So you might think I'm an eternal optimist, Jan. <laughs> I'm not sure you do that. But that's what I would like to think might come out of this. Well, finally, Paul, just a quote from one commentator, but I'm sure it's echoed by many people. Never see the day when Israel, a country filled with Holocaust survivors and their descendants, would face a serious charge of genocide. Well, unfortunately, their conduct has brought this allegation upon them. I mean, the fact that over the last 16 years, for example, with, with, with Gaza, the fact that uh, they have controlled the people in that little piece of land so that they can't come or go from Gaza without Israeli approval, the fact that, they, that nothing goes in there without Israeli approval, and then in the West Bank, the fact that they are supporting settlers to go in and destroy Palestinians' farms and take over their land and, and destroy their housing and the East, East Jerusalem destroy their housing. These are acts that uh, one doesn't like saying it, but they're acts that um, that the uh, uh, Nazi government in Germany uh, undertook against Jewish people. 
exactly the same sorts of conduct that uh, the Nazis undertook in Warsaw against the Jewish people there. So I'm sorry, they've brought it on themselves. Uh, and whilst well, I, I have many Jewish friends and I am very well aware that many Jewish people are opposed to what the current Israeli government is doing, and rightly so. And, and I think that in the United States, this is becoming more and more apparent from what you read, uh, particularly with the, the younger um, uh, Jewish people in the United States, under people under 35. Polls suggest that they are, have turned against Joe Biden. Of course, he himself personally is facing an allegation of genocide in the US courts at the moment. It's an interesting world that we're living in at the moment, Jan. I, I, I don't think I've seen it like this since Vietnam. Thank you, Paul. And Paul is Paul Haywood-Smith, recently retired after 20 years at the bar as a QC in Adelaide and the initial chairperson of the Australian Friends of Palestine Association, which is registered in South Australia. Be a part of this year's National Sustainability Festival and join ABC Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiadis for a huge afternoon of sustainability at the Great Local Picnic, featuring a terrific lineup of sustainability innovators. Bring your picnic rug with your homegrown harvests or pack a locally sourced spread to the Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne for a celebration of local food, sustainability and community connection. Full program online, sustainabilityfestival.au. The National Sustainability Festival is a 3CR supporter. Back in August last year, journalist and author Fred Fuentes outlined five reasons why the radical right, under the leadership of extreme libertarian candidate Javier Millier, could win the Argentine presidential elections later that year. I spoke again with Fred and asked him to briefly spell out those reasons, those five reasons why he believed that Millet would win. Look, unfortunately, I, I think I was um, in the sense that, you know, uh, as I wrote in my article back then for Green Left, the far right with the candidate uh, Javier Millet uh, ended up winning. But I think it actually, in, in many ways, it was sort of a bit predictable. I, I mean, the first reason, the most obvious reason is just that the, the economic context in, in Argentina, it's, it's now been uh, several years of very profound, deep economic crisis, economic stagnation, inflation exceeding 100%. Constant currency devaluation, meaning workers' wages have been pulverised, and rising crime and, and increased precarisation of the workforce. So, all of that has basically meant that in the last, let's say, five years, poverty has risen from about 15, 20% to now over 40%. So, in that context, it's you know, of course, people are going to be, you know, and rightly so, extremely angry at the at the existing government and and the. Alternate candidate to Malay was was a minister, in fact, the economic minister in the previous government. 
but I think also the fact that we saw um, Malay who runs as an outsider, um, which is you know, not a, not an uncommon thing nowadays, in the sense that he didn't run with the traditional right-wing uh, electoral alliance. What that election result re- reflected was the total collapse, not not just in support for the government, but in fact in support for the political system as a whole, or the the traditional parties, be they centre left, centre right, or traditional right. And very much it was expressed, you know, very commonly you could hear it in the media when box pops in the street of people just saying, look, we've tried everyone else. I mean, it's time to try something new. And that was a big, big sentiment behind the vote for Malay. And many, many cases saying, irrespective of his politics, we've just got to try something new. And I think, so that's the first thing, you know, that general sentiment, not just of opposition to the existing parties, but a sense of wanting something different. And, And this was very much expressed in a very contradictory way in the chants that were being done at, at Malay's, uh, not just in his election campaigns, but in, after his victory speech, where the, where the crowd re-raised the chant made famous in 2001 with a mass uprising that overthrew uh, five neoliberal presidents in the space of one week, uh, which was the chant, que se vayan todos, uh, all, let's throw all of them out, you know, every single one. So, you know, again, at another aspect, I think uh, the, a, a fourth aspect is that Malay's discourse, apart from having a, a general sort of tapping into a general anti-political, anti-system sort of sentiment, very much also tapped into an increasing sector of the population, which is the, the informal sector, the small business, many of whom share his ideas of freedom, entrepreneurship, self-empowerment, risk, uh, all of those very much tie in with his libertarian discourse. So he was also able to tap into changing sociology that's occurring in Argentina. And I think that the fifth one that has to be said is that within all that, um, was just, I suppose, really in some ways the, the failure or the inability of left-wing, of radical left-wing parties to be able to tap into that discontent. So in the end result is this bad economic situation, this discontent with the political system, this seeking out for, uh, for an alternative finds its expression in the right uh, rather than on the left. Well, he's been in power for less than a month. What is that radical change? Well, it's it's extremely radical. I mean, what, what we've seen in in the last uh, since he since he was inaugurated in in December is that he's used a big omnibus bill together with the uh, the use of um, urgent necessities to basically go about reforming something like 300 laws, uh, or in some cases, totally removing them. And they cover a wide gamut of things, uh, from taxation to questions of protections on certain uh, goods for exports and imports. Uh, through to even small things like uh, uh, ensuring that judges in courts have to wear uh, uh, wigs and gowns. Uh, you know, so it really, you know, he's sort of um, trying to introduce, a, trying to basically under the argument that Argentina is on the precipice of, a, of an economic total collapse um, and that therefore these measures are extremely urgent, must be implemented all at once without any democratic discussion in parliament uh, in order to not waste time. And that really what Argentina will now have to do is push through even more pain to come out. We're seeing him implementing a, a very extreme agenda. I think possibly one more extreme than, than many people expected in, in the economic field because in the first few days after his elections, what became clear was that because of this rapid rise that he had, as I, as I explained, the fact that he comes from outside of the traditional political class, Malay found it very difficult to find people to fill his ministry cabinet. Now, he partly resolved that by closing, I think, from memories, eight different ministries. That was part of his election promise that he would you know, cut back on, on the state. But this was displayed also by the fact that, for instance, his, his economy minister back in the Macri government, which was sort of two terms ago, uh, a traditional right government. So, you know, he had to sort of basically rely on that same political class that he had criticised all along in his election campaign. 
for many people were wondering, well, is this going to be more like a traditional right government? But I think what, what we're seeing is, is an attempt to, to really go extreme, really pulverise people's uh, wages. So what we're seeing you know, in the last month is a rapid increase in inflation, even though he said he, you know, he would come to fight inflation. His, his argument now is that we're, we're going to have to suffer very high inflation for the next few months. Uh, in order to come out the other side uh, in a better position. Of course, what he means by that is that in, in six months' time, certainly the situation for big business will be much better, but by that stage, workers' wages will have almost been completely pulverised and disappeared. Well, being a relative newcomer, does he have a mentor? Well, he's working very closely with Macri, um, the, as I mentioned the two terms ago, uh, Mauricio Macri, who was the president there from pro, from the traditional right. But having said that, it's, you know, it isn't clear at all exactly what that relationship is. Now, obviously, they both need each other. You know, Macri is playing a bit of a gamble. Like, he's trying to keep his election coalition with some semblance of sort of support, trying to relevancy, you know, having, having suffered a quite a big defeat, not even making it into the second round of the presidential elections with his candidate. So he's trying to do that. And, and Malay knows that he kind of needs... Macri and, and that traditional right to be able to govern in terms of filling cabinet spots, but also in terms of getting things passed in the legislative in the legislature, because uh, he doesn't doesn't have a majority in, in parliament. You know, he very much needs to work. In fact, even with Macri with the pro alliance, he still probably doesn't have enough to pass a lot of le- a lot of legislation. So, so they, they need each other, but it's, it is unclear what 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 is happening. You know, the, I, I think it's probably not totally unfair to envisage a situation where Macri really is operating behind the scenes to kind of get Millet to carry out all this stuff, but then be able to hang him out to dry um, when the protests start and when, you know, it becomes very clear that even some sections of, of big business are not particularly happy with, with some of the, the policies that he's implemented. Not a path that could be ruled out, but of course, all of that is going to depend on the resistance to these measures. Because what we've seen is that when these measures are announced, at first there's support from everyone, and then as soon as the protests start, you start to see fragmentation and differentiations, different people from Malay's um, alliance sort of dumbing and ahhing about how much they support this. When the protests die down over Christmas, New Year, uh, once again, there's a lot of unity. But we've got in, on a January 24, a general strike being called by the, the largest trade union confederation. And we'll see what happens there and what sort of that provokes in terms of divisions or fissures or it consolidates unity amongst these different uh, sort of clans that are in power at the moment. And a lot of threats to people who protest? Yes. Yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that. that. I mean, that's part of these these decrees. You know, a big part of it is, is essentially, you know, um, uh, threats combined with changes of laws uh, to criminalise dissent. They're basically saying that they will have no, no tolerance when it comes to any protest that, are, that affects people's ordinary day-to-day lives. Now, of course, that, that can mean anything because a march down the street is obviously going to affect traffic. But they're saying that you know this, this could be cause for breaking up a, a protest. They're saying that any any economic damage caused by protest, the bill will be passed on to organisations. Again, this can literally mean uh, people turning up late to work because of a street protest. We're seeing already the, the the talk of you know increasing funding for police. So far, though, it hasn't yet been able you know uh, fully used. Now, whether that's because the government is uncertain about how far it can go with this whether it doesn't feel like it needs to use those full powers it's given itself. It, it's not clear. Uh, and as I said, maybe January 24, we'll test on that. But really, that's the kind of moment we're in at the moment. The Malay government has gone big. It's done a big, big gambit with its decrees, um, with its omnibus bill, uh, omnibus bill, 
it's sort of, you know, marked out its field. And now it's sort of waiting for the response to see how much of this gambit, big gambit that it's done that it can get away with or not. It's not clear yet. It's, there is definitely protest. There's definitely resistance. But we're yet to see how big that is and whether that's sufficient enough to really push back on the Malay government. And then we're yet to see how Malay will react to that. Will, will he agree to, to come back to negotiate a bit or will he just go deeper in with his, with his program and go all out? And as I said, as you mentioned, you know, use that repression to try to consolidate his hold on power. What about threats to the social fabric of the country? I'm thinking about threats to ban abortion, cuts to public funding. Those are there, but Malay hasn't really prioritised those. Look, firstly, on the abortion thing, you know, in Argentina, it's been a campaign, but Malay's position, even though he's opposed to it, if the opposition want it, they should have a referendum. So he, unlike some of the other far-right candidates that have been elected around the world, uh, whilst he shares many of their very regressive views on abortion, LGBTI rights, things like that, it's, it's not really a big part of his discourse, not something that he focuses on. And then even with the, the social spending, of course, now, as I mentioned, he's, he's slashed eight ministries, so there's already been a lot of cuts that have been occurring there. He has been careful to not completely erase all of them, you know, on the knowledge that there has to be at least some level of a safety net, social safety net, if he doesn't want the entire country to explode all, all at once. What he's done is more, he's sort of, let's say, trim, you know, trying to target at attacks, particularly on those social spending for the poorest, without having completely slashed it. But as I said, I think at the moment, it's all part of feeling out where, how far he can go with stuff. If he feels that he can get away with quite easily with what he's already set down, which is a huge attack, I've got no doubt that he'll push on those other ones. If he's pushed back, then those things will sort of, recede into the background and he'll focus on on the current measures that he's trying to impose uh, which are largely more as i said even though there's a huge thing 300 different laws that have been affected the real big thing now in play is sort of the macroeconomic policies that that he's trying to implement which are essentially trying to hand over large chunks of the economy whether that be currently uh, publicly owned sectors of the economy to, to the private sector or whether that be basically destroying sort of small and medium businesses that relied on a lot of the protection measures, subsidies, things like that, to see a further concentration of the private sector into fewer and fewer hands. Finally, for Argentina, when I mentioned Mentor before, he's had a visit from Bolsonaro. Is he getting support from Trump? They're the sort of people who would give him that support that he needs? There's no doubt, firstly, that in general, there's very much internationally a lot of collaboration that's going on between these different far-right governments. I mean, it's also, for instance, not a coincidence that one of the first visits that Malay did was to Israel as well, uh, where we have another far-right president uh, in power, Benjamin Netanyahu. So so there is certainly that. Um, that said, I, I don't think, again, I don't think we can directly compare, or we could say that Bolsonaro and Malay are exactly the same. Definitely come from different backgrounds. And Bolsonaro is much more conservative, socially conservative, in, in what I mentioned in that previous question about abortion, LGBTI rights. And also, you know, it comes from a you know, military background, which is quite different from Malay. But absolutely, they're working together. Uh, they're collaborating. They're showing the support for each other. In that regard, I think that's why a lot of the left in the region see the importance of solidarity and support with the struggle now in Argentina, um, because they view it as not just a struggle for the people of Argentina or in support or in solidarity of the people of Argentina, but as a, as a broader continental and, you know, arguably a global fight against the, the extreme right. 
Well, from the south of South America to the north, and we're talking now about Venezuela, and the dispute between Venezuela and Guyana over the Escobar region. What's the history behind this dispute? The reality is that on one hand, the, the history goes back a, a long way. I mean, we're talking basically around the time of Venezuela's independence and discussions that occurred uh, with the English over who would get control over that particular area. Now, that happened a long time ago. Ever since then, Venezuela has always maintained a claim over the Esequibo region, but it's always been a latent claim. It's never been one that it's pursued, uh, certainly not on the level that it, what it's doing now, and we'll, we'll get to that. But it's always, it's always sort of been there present as, as a discussion point. Under the Chavez government, uh, that is Hugo Chavez prior to the current president, uh, Nicolas Maduro, what we saw was the beginning of initiation of going at least to international courts to allow them to you know, decide to sort of work out what, what is the actual legitimacy or legality of Venezuela's claim over that area. And that's been a long-term process. There's been, you know, sort of advances and then falling back on that. Sometimes the Venezuelan government has sort of been more supportive of that process, sometimes it's less supportive. We've never really seen the kind of ramping up of its claim as we saw in the last few months, where Venezuela essentially just unilaterally declares that it's going to hold a referendum asking its citizens to vote on whether Venezuela should reclaim the area. And beyond that, basically set up a, a, you know, a, another state government, a regional government in that area. It's done that. Of course, as expected, the, the result was that Venezuelan government should go ahead with that. And that's, of course, ratcheted up tensions because you're essentially staking now a direct claim o- over that territory, something that Guyana rejects. For a few days, it was very unclear what would happen. I think the tensions were very high not just Guyana, but Brazil, uh, which is in that area, mobilised troops to the border um, because no one was quite certain how far Venezuela would go with that. Uh, thankfully, since then, the situation has calmed down with the government's agreeing to go back to the dialogue table, negotiations table, to try and sort this out. Potentially a, a very dangerous situation because one only needs to look at what's happening in the world today to see how quickly things can escalate into actual outright military conflict. That has now been sort of pulled back and we're now basically, you know, at a situation of, of dialogue and discourse. And you know, we'll, we'll have to see, of course, how that pans out. But looming in the background is the fact that presidential elections are due in Venezuela. And of course, you know, this issue, you know, will be part of this election campaign occurring in Venezuela this year. Is oil the major issue around this? I think there's no doubt that is a major issue. I mean, there's huge reserves in that area. There has been the beginnings of some exploitation by Guyana of that area, but it's far from being fully exploited. That exploitation has occurred under, like, during Chavez and Maduro. So this is, you know, this is not something that's just happened in the last week or two that triggered Venezuela's response. That process has begun. Venezuela, again, at certain points has made a bit more noise and other times less noise. You know, often it's the same companies that operate in Venezuela that are operating in that area. By sort of sense is that this is probably what Venezuela is angling at is, you know, I've got no doubt that they would like to reclaim that territory. As I said, they've got a historic claim over it. You know, they, they, they believe history and law is on their side. I wouldn't rule it out that were they to come to some kind of agreement in terms of 
the capturing of royalties of the oil that gets exploited in that region, that that may be a way of diffusing the dialogue ends up up going and you know sort of diffuses the crisis. Of course, we're yet to be seen, but, but I think that it, that is certainly a part of it. I, I would also add that I think part of it, as, as I mentioned before, is, is a kind of, um, let's say, a political manoeuvre in an election year of, of really sort of, you know, ramping up the sort of uh, support for Venezuela, for the government, for its claim over something that many Venezuelans support, and really putting the opposition in a bind because the, many of the opposition are a bit divided on this issue. You know, on the one hand, they sort of don't want to be seen to be opposing this claim. Um, but they don't also don't want to be seen to be supporting the government and want to, and have been trying to use this to attack the government. So it's also served as a very, very useful foil uh, or a very useful manoeuvre uh, in terms of sort of dividing the rights. So I think that those two factors are certainly in playing in, in the government's mind, the, the oil, but also how, it, how this issue might be able to be used to be play out in terms of the elections. Well, tensions might have been lessened there, but on the West Coast, Ecuador, there's a lot of strife there. They're saying it's a, to do with drugs. Is that the whole story? I remember when we talked after the recent Ecuadorian elections, I'd mentioned about how crime had been uh, such a big issue. And absolutely, drugs and organised crime is really what we're seeing behind here. Now, of course, behind that is the web of power that exists between organised crime and elements of, of, the, of the police and, in, and into the government and the judiciary. But what we're seeing is that, you know, this rapid turnaround in Ecuador from you know, only probably about five, six years ago being, Ecuador likes to call itself the island of peace, you know, in, in the region, you know, particularly when you compared it to Colombia with a more than 50-year civil war, uh, to Peru that also had its armed guerrilla groups there. You know, Ecuador seemed to be like the, the kind of little haven in the region. One of the lowest homicide rates in all of Latin America uh, and is now one of the most dangerous places in the world in the space of five years. And so what we're seeing is a rapid rise of insertion of organised crime uh, in, in Ecuadorian society. These are organised crime groups, not just that are in Ecuador, but that are linked all the way up to cartels in Mexico, uh, cartels in Colombia. So we're talking, you know, a, a power that, as, as we've seen actually in the last almost two weeks now, is not afraid to basically stand toe-to-toe and confront the entire Ecuadorian state. Uh, these are groups that have been controlling the prison system now or large parts of the prison system for, for the last few years basically using those prison systems to operate out of, to do their drug business. Um, and are now, as they've shown, you know, taken over TV station. Now the prosecutor who's uh, in charge of investigating that crime has been assassinated. They're demonstrating to Ecuadorian society that, you know, just how much power they have and how much they're willing to use it. So it's, it's been a very tense, very dangerous, very scary period of time for many Ecuadorians who, of course, the government's response has been to declare a, a state of emergency, a state of internal civil war. Uh, curfews have been imposed. Schools have basically gone online. People are not going to school anymore. Um, many people are just literally afraid to leave their home because you know, there's this sense of well, who, who actually is in power at the moment in Ecuador. So it is a very da- a dangerous and tense situation, no doubt. Well, surely this is a complete breakdown, isn't it, of the country? What we're seeing is occurring and what we're yet to find out is you know, how, how this is going to be resolved because it's not clear that the, the state can re- reimpose their authority here. Now, the problem is, is, as is quite often when it comes to organised crime, and particularly when organised crime is linked in with the government, is no, no one quite knows what the trigger for all this is and, and what the, the organised groups are hoping to get out of it. Now, you know, on the surface, the trigger is the escape by the leader of one of the organised groups, alias Theodore, uh, to supposedly what triggered the government's response and, and vice versa. But 
you know, many believe that what is likely behind this is that the government and these organised crime groups probably had some kind of level of accord. You know, maybe it was allowing them to basically operate the prisons, as I said before, as, as centres for uh, drug trafficking operations. We've got the new government that's come in out of the elections last year, uh, President Daniel Naboa. Seems to have tried to implement some measures, including you know, moving some key prisoners around to different prisons to try to sort of break up this, this power. And this has been the reaction. So is it that the, the crime groups are trying to use this to impose their authority, to, to demonstrate what they can do in order to negotiate, to you know, uh, regain the deal, the secret deal they had with the government? Is there something else behind it? Uh, uh, what are they aiming for? It's not clear. But as you said, what they've demonstrated is the complete weakness of the Ecuadorian state and the total power that they that they're able to exercise. For what purposes? You know, we don't know. I mean, it's pretty clear that the aim here isn't to uh, take over the, the state, to, to form a new government. That, that doesn't seem to be um, uh, on, on the cards. So there must be something else there, but it's, it's not really been clear. What many are assuming is that they're behind the scenes there are some kind of levels of negotiations for the organised crime groups to basically sort of say, hey, look, you know, don't touch us. We, we're going to continue to do our things and, and we'll, go, we'll let things go back to normal. Just very briefly, Fred, to Brazil... It's one year since the storming of the presidential palace, the Congress and Supreme Court buildings calling for military intervention. Is Bolsonaro still exerting influence? Firstly, of course, the defeat of Bolsonaro in the elections is a very important victory for democratic progressive forces in Brazil. Um, The need to get Bolsonaro out of power after the disastrous four years was vital. and, And so that was an important step. But I, I, in fact, I was, I was in Brazil just in December for a couple of weeks. And what many expressed and what I you know, literally uh, saw when, when, when I was there is that while Bolsonaro is not in the presidency, Bolsonarismo as, as a political movement is, is far from defeated or gone. You know, it continues to have an important presence in parliament, in state government, in gov- as governors, in local councils. That movement is still there. See, for instance, I was in Sao Paulo and the governor there is, is aligned with Bolsonaro. In fact, many believe that he, he may be the, the candidate if Bolsonaro is not able to run because of his legal cases in, in the next presidential election. So he's trying to demonstrate to the Brazilian business class that he can, he can run the country. So he's currently going through this movement of sort of radical privatisation of public services. And when I was there, the, the state legislator voted for the privatisation of the water company. It did so literally amidst... Uh, repression and, and the use of uh, uh, pepper spray against protesters in, in the gallery uh, who are expressing their opposition uh, to this privatisation. The police pulled out, you know, everyone out of the parliament, even despite the still continued presence of pepper spray, the, the Bolsonaro state parliamentarians came back and, and voted up this privatisation. So the, the extreme right still has a, a lot of power in Brazil. And the challenge that the left faces is that Having elected Lula was really important in weakening the right, but the way Lula is governing, which is to constantly give concessions to the right, means that it's kind of empowering the right. And so they've got this difficult challenge now of continuing to, on the one hand, support the government or support progressive measures that fight against the right and calling for even stronger measures. So yeah, a big part of these, these days remembering those protests was the, the left in Brazil saying, look, there, there must be no amnesty for the people behind these events. And it has to go all the way to the top to the intellectual authors of, of the, the attacks that you mentioned on January 8. People aren't, shouldn't be allowed to get away with the kind of, kind of undemocratic actions that occurred on, on that day. But also at the same time, being able to be critical and mobilise against the Lula government, 
when it continues to capitulate to the demands of the business class and of the right wing, because all that ends up doing is feeding more discontent amongst people, increasing poverty, uh, and, and, and just becomes fertile ground, uh, much like what occurred in Argentina for the extreme right to tap into that discontent and, and return to power. And I've been speaking with journalist and author Fred Fuentes, also a journalist with Green Left Weekly. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.